I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we're discussing the increase of Chinese flight incursions into Taiwan's Air Defense Identification Zone, or ADAS. Since Tsai Ing-wen's election to the presidency in Taiwan in 2016, mainland China has ramped up pressure on Taiwan across several fronts. The most visible form of coercion has been China's military flights into Taiwan's ADAs covering the Taiwan Strait. The center line has served as a de facto maritime border since the late 1950s. But in September 2020, the Chinese government denied ever agreeing to it. Over the past three years, China has significantly increased its use of incursions into the ADAs in effort to intimidate Taiwan. In 2019, the PLA flew between 10 to 20 aircraft sorties into the ADAs. In 2020, that number increased to 390. And in 2021, there were a total of 972 sorties flown on 240 days. October 4, 2021 saw 56 sorties cross into Taiwan's ADAs, the most in a single day. Although 49 sorties crossed the center line in 2020, Chinese center line crossings have stopped since September 2020. The remaining Chinese flights have been in the southwest portion of Taiwan's ADAs. So what is responsible for China's military escalations around Taiwan? What is the logic behind these incursions? And what has been the response in Taiwan, the United States, and elsewhere? Joining me today to discuss their work tracking and analyzing these developments are Ken Allen, Gerald Brown, and Tom Shattuck. They have a forthcoming chapter in Modernizing the People's Liberation Army, aspiring to be a global military power, part of the Routledge Asian Security Studies series. Ken Allen served 21 years in the United States Air Force as a Chinese and Russian linguist and intelligence officer and as the assistant air attaché in Beijing from 1987 to 1989. From 2017 to 2019, he served as a research director for the U.S. Air Force's China Aerospace Studies Institute. Ken's primary focus has been on China's military organization structure, personnel, education, training, and military diplomacy with a particular emphasis on the PLA Air Force. Joe Brown is a defense analyst researching nuclear deterrence, the People's Liberation Army, and Indo-Pacific security. Previously, he spent six years in the U.S. Air Force working in nuclear security operations. He also created a key English language database for PLA incursions on which the group's research is based. Tom Shattuck is the Global Order Program Manager at the University of Pennsylvania's Perry World House and a non-resident fellow in the Asia Program at the Foreign Policy Research Institute. Tom's research has focused on cross-strait relations, Taiwanese and Chinese domestic and foreign affairs, and the U.S. role in East Asia and the Indo-Pacific. Thank you all for joining me today. It's my pleasure. I really want to thank you and Hannah for putting this together. Also for Gerald and Tom, we started working on this project just over six months ago, and uh, we're looking forward to Rutledge actually publishing the article here down the road, and I think we've covered pretty much the, all the bases. Thank you. Yeah, I'm, I'm happy to be here as well. It's a great opportunity to share our research uh, with CSIS and the greater policy community. Yeah, I'll, I'll echo that. Thanks again for uh, having us on here, Bonnie. It's, an, it's a pleasure. What is an ADIS and why do we care about ADISs in general? So basically, the United Nations International Civil Aviation Organization, or ICAO, defines an ADIS as a special designated airspace of defined dimensions within which aircraft are required to comply with special identification and or reporting procedures additional to those related to the provision of air traffic service. However, 
Well, ICAO defines an aid as it does not define procedures or practices for the establishment and operation of an aid is. No international regulations or consensus exist concerning the center line of the Taiwan Strait. It traces back to the days of the U.S. and the Republic of China, i.e. ROC, Mutual Defense Treaty in 1954, and it served for two purposes. First, which to prevent a large-scale confrontation between the two sides of the Taiwan Strait, the PRC and the ROC, and second, it was to keep Chiang Kai-shek from trying to retake the mainland since it might involve the U.S. in another war, which was already involved in a war in Korea. So there's been quite a bit of discussion of uh, PLA flights into Taiwan's ADAs, but why should we care about this? The People's Liberation Army air incursions into Taiwan's air defense identification zone are but one of Beijing's salami tactics that it uses to encroach on Taiwan's sovereignty. The reason that the greater public, uh, American public, anywhere, any public in the Indo-Pacific should care is that it's probably the most public and aggressive action that Beijing has taken against Taipei. And more importantly, it's probably the easiest to understand for a layperson, like economic warfare, information warfare. They're very hard to understand. At times, I have a hard time understanding it. But showing a map with a plane moving into Taiwan's ADIS is a lot easier to understand. Like there's a clear delineation and response. So having people push back on this one issue, especially since it's a military aspect, can serve as a focal point for greater pushback um, against Beijing's threats in other areas. So as we've seen in the initial phases of the war in Ukraine, having air superiority in a conflict really matters. And in the eventual possibly chance of a Chinese invasion of Taiwan, these ADIS incursions would potentially be a nice opportunity for China to practice some sort of air invasion to achieve air superiority in the event that an invasion occurs. From your research, Tom, what do you see as the main political goals uh, driving China and Taiwan, particularly with respect to Chinese flights into Taiwan's ADIS? I think the the political goals, generally speaking, of both Taiwan and China haven't really changed recently. China still hopes for some sort of peaceful unification or reunification with Taiwan without having to actually fight a war to conquer Taiwan. However, Beijing still hasn't renounced the use of force in an effort to make that unification happen. And on the flip side for Taiwan, the Tsai administration's political goal is essentially to maintain the status quo, what's happening right now, where Taiwan has an unofficial de facto independence. Since Beijing doesn't govern or control any part of Taiwan, Taiwan has its own military, government, police, borders. They're all defined without any sort of Chinese governance involved. A secondary goal for Taiwan is to strengthen its relationship with informal partners like Japan and the United States and to internationalize the security of the Taiwan Strait. That way, when Beijing launches these incursions into Taiwan's ADIS, the international community will speak out and take it more seriously than it had perhaps even one, maybe even two years ago. So to really get the focus on the ADIS as a real military coercive tactic that the U.S. and Japan and other countries in Europe will recognize as an issue that they need to now pay attention to. Yeah, I'll just throw one thing in here. I just, I'm a former PE major and an athlete in college and high school. I like to use sports analogies. So the thing to me is this, that in I actually think all of these sorties and everything else, 
Taiwan and the U.S. probably learned more about the PLA Air Force and what it does over the last couple of years than we did before that because we're watching it day to day. We're watching when they take off, who they talk to, when do they form, how long does it take them to do a sortie, what do they do, when do they go back. I think we've actually probably learned more about them. And at the same time, they've learned a lot about Taiwan's Air Force at the same time. You have two teams that are playing each other, and they're going to watch each other before they ever play that game. You have an offense, you have a defense, you have all of these kinds of things. That you analyze that. So in some respect, I think we've probably learned more about the PLA Force in the last year and a half than we did a long time before that. That's just my opinion. Okay, great. So my understanding is that uh, China isn't just flying into Taiwan's ADAs, but there are also Chinese military activities across the center line. Has China been conducting these for a long time? Some have said that there's been a shift in Chinese tactics starting in 2012. I wanted to get your sense of, is there a shift and how significant is this shift? Yeah, there's definitely been a shift and a lot of this is new. The center line specifically, uh, it's a little more niche. This stopped actually in 2021, but the incursions in general are pretty new. I wouldn't say 2012 would be the uh, right date there, but let's start back a little farther actually. The PLA hardly ever flew into the Strait at all until really around 1996, uh, much less into the uh, 80s. There were a couple flights into the 80s and across the center line in the late 1990s, but these really quickly uh, kind of dropped off. And throughout the uh, 2000s, there was really nothing outside of a very brief incursion in 2014. This trend of like no activity continued until about 2019 when a couple of sorties, uh, less than 20, crossed into the 80s that year starting that March. Even that with a pretty significant shift, obviously, but that number increased substantially to 390 in 2020, was 49 of those crossing the center line, as you mentioned, and uh, all the way up to 972 sorties crossing into the uh, air defense identification zone in 2021. Further, the makeup of these flights keeps becoming more provocative. The majority of the flights today consist of fighter aircraft, and we've seen a variety of patterns that appear to be testing a wider range of capabilities for the PLA as well. I know, Tom, we've touched about uh, on this already, but what? how does PLA flights against Taiwan fit within the larger range of coercive PLA tactics against Taiwan? The ADA's incursions generally serve two major political purposes. They serve the function of being a form of punishment and a form of intimidation. So the data that we have has shown that whenever there's a big, I will call it a pro-Taiwan foreign policy event occurs, Generally, there's going to be a large-scale incursion the next day or the day after, or there could be multiple over a series of days. And some of these examples are when a high-profile American government official visits Taipei, or when the Tsai administration announced that Taiwan was applying to join the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership, the CPTPP. And another big one was when Taiwan had representatives at Biden's Summit for Democracy in December 2021. So these three examples, they're generally Taiwan expands its international space, that what happens the next day, there's a large-scale incursion with more than 10. That's for the punishment factor. Now, for the intimidation factor, it's the same. The other side of the same coercive coin where these incursions are a warning for just not just Taiwan, but for the international community. For Taiwan, it's a warning to stop getting comfortable or stop crossing Beijing's so-called red lines. And if they continue to do this, they'll pay with resources through the ADIS incursions. And for the international community, it serves as a warning to don't get too close to Taiwan. So, so Ken, in it... Uh, it- 
I know we've already talked a, a bit about um, PLA flights and uh, ADAs and understanding um, some of the patterns. But I also know that your report also covers a lot more ground than what we've talked about. What are some additional key findings from your report that you would like to share uh, with the audience? Thank you, buddy. The biggest issue for me is that I was looking at the database already. Since September of 2020, through basically this week, the PLA has flown over 1,300 sorties into the ADAs in roughly, what, a year and a half. But although the numbers are impressive, if you start breaking it down by pilots and airframes, it makes a bit of a difference, specifically. Yeah, let's say that, okay, I have 12 hours, and I spend two and a half or three hours of that flying one sortie. I only have nine hours left. And those hours are based on aircraft maintenance. That's what drives the entire PLA Air Force and Naval Aviation, not just the Air Force, is aircraft maintenance uh, per airframe. So I go out and I do that. So now I have to figure out, and I have to meet my requirements. I have to meet monthly requirements. If I don't do this, it's called training for the test, so to speak. So I can spend three hours doing this, but that means I'm not spending a couple hours doing 1v1, 2v2, you know, doing something opposition force training. So I'm missing part of my other training requirement as well. And then the other thing I would drive home is this. Think if there was a conflict with Taiwan. Okay, so I have two J-16s or four J-16s out there. If they're going to attack Taiwan, they might have 20 aircraft out there. How often do they put 20 aircraft in the air to do this? So what are, what are they really getting out of this? That's my, my question. Okay, great. Um, Gerald and Tom, I want to also bring you in on this. Anything else that you want to add in terms of um, some of the major findings from your report that you want to highlight? As I said, the, the key foreign policy finding is that Beijing uses these incursions to publicly and very loudly signal its displeasure with Taiwan or how foreign policy is going in the Indo-Pacific. And that Beijing uses that lever whenever it so chooses against Taiwan, because it's at a lower cost to do it against Taiwan than it would say to ratchet up military tensions with Japan or even the United States. So it just serves a purpose for Beijing to do a low cost foreign policy and military action against a partner or against an adversary that isn't really going to respond at the same way that it would if Japan or the United States were the target. Yeah, no, so I, I'd say as well, uh, in addition to the uh, points that Ken and Tom raised, the operational aspects of some of the uh, smaller number of flights stood out to me a lot. These days, with the fewer sorties, they appear to be more operational in nature rather than being geared for signaling or for political purposes. The more most prevalent of these would be anti-submarine warfare aircraft, which appear to be forming tasks such as tracking submarines and monitoring foreign naval activities. Uh, additionally, we've also been able to pick up by like, evaluating flight paths uh, kind of get additional information on how PLA aviation operates, things like inter-air refueling drills and uh, maritime strike training and the kind of formations that they would be using for some of that. So as we look at the PLA flights into the Taiwan ADAs, I noticed that one finding from your report was that there was not that many advanced operations. So what explains this lack of advanced operations? So it's very difficult to say with any real degree of certainty, but I think it largely reflects the relatively inexperienced nature of the PLA aviation in a lot of these matters. Uh, the PLA has grown substantially very quickly, but it still has a lot of catching up to do operationally. 
Uh, however, I do think it's fair to say that the more advanced operations are quickly becoming more prevalent, and these reports are kind of allowing us to see the PLA train and become more capable in real time. For instance, the air-to-air -air refueling operation that occurred last November was a really important advancement. It featured aircraft out of the PLA's Central, Central Cedar Command and provided a uh, large step in controlling the airspace within the first island chain. The level of combat aircraft being flown have also increased substantially since these incursions have started and flying in new configurations and including a large variety of night training, especially towards the end of 2021. Further, the variety of aircraft being included in these operations keeps expanding. So I think the kind of takeaway here is PLA Aviation still really has a long ways to go, but it is rapidly becoming more capable. Thank you. So what does this mean in terms of as the PLA is becoming more capable and beginning to engage in these advanced operations, what does this mean for the readiness of the PLA to conduct a cross-strait invasion? The tr trillion dollar questions whether uh, or when Beijing will decide to invade and I didn't think it was likely two years ago. I don't think it's likely now post-Russian uh, invasion of Ukraine. As Gerald had said, like the, the PLA is starting to get more sophisticated with uh, its operations in the region. And you have to be beyond starting to be sophisticated to pull off a successful amphibious invasion of Taiwan. So I think... It's not likely in the foreseeable future. I think the PIA will just we'll see more training and more uh, incursions in the ADIS, but I don't think they're quite there yet to be 100% certain that a cross-strait invasion would be successful. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, that's kind of right. Like Tom pointed out, it's really difficult to assess. Uh, amphibious invasions are incredibly difficult, and invading Taiwan really has its own layers of additional complications added onto there. I certainly don't think an invasion is by any means imminent, uh, and I don't see that goal necessarily going away anytime soon either. The increased sophistication of the incursions does signal to me that they're rapidly improving their capabilities towards that end, but there is still a, definitely a long ways to go. And let me throw something in here. I don't look at policy that much in politics and, and those things, but what I look at is personnel and training and organizational structure things. If anything, starting in 2020, the PLA sort of went down because they went from a single training cycle with the enlisted force, they bring in 330,000 new two-year conscripts at the same time every year. 330,000. They lose 330,000 on the same day. So for about four months, they've lost that many people because they're going through basic training and all that. How does this cycle fit? Now what they've done, they've gone to a two-cycle system instead of a one-cycle system. So they're just getting into this right now. And then you have to look at weather, January, February, March, April, May, June, all the way through the year. What is the best year? You have to think in terms of typhoons and hurricanes and weather and what are they doing. And taking a look at all the sorties and stuff, sort of you have the elevator briefing and then you get down in the weeds. This is sort of down in the weeds. What struck me is just over the last few weeks, you have a single aircraft, a single J-16 flying. The most they ever had was from, I believe it was 34, but normally it's about anywhere from two to four aircraft. And I always look at that from an organizational standpoint in terms of a squadron. So the question is, if they were going to attack Taiwan, they'd have to put 100 aircraft in the air. They just don't do that. They don't practice that. And they've always said for the last 20 years, you're going to fight the way you train. They're not training to do that, in my opinion. We have already touched on this a bit, but what explains the variations in PLA flights into Taiwan's ADAs? There's kind of three key components here, right? There's the operational factor, where 
that includes like things just the uh, anti-submarine warfare sorties, uh, intelligence, things, things along those lines that are flown on a more routine nature into the uh, air defense identification zone. Training factor, which would be you know more like the uh, maritime strike patterns, the so training cycles that Ken uh, was discussing, uh, things along those lines. Then there's the political signaling aspect, which is more towards what Tom's gotten into, which is a lot more of what we've seen with these large incursions. And I, there could be overlap for sure, right? I think a lot of the political signaling side uh, likely corresponds to the training side, you know, like they can work in unison. But those are kind of the three domains that I think that we can divide them into a little bit. And then there's also other factors, like you said, the can mention the bird strikes, weather patterns, things along those lines that can kind of drive and change how many incursions occur. But I think that kind of dividing into those three categories is the best way to do that personally. And I think, um, as Gerald said, politically, like it's in that aspect, you can kind of tie a pro either pro Taiwan event in Asia or even an anti China event like the signing of the AUKUS pact. Those are kind of correlated to a large scale incursion. Um, so you can trace whenever and almost predict if something in Taiwan is happening for its security enhancement that China is going to respond in a certain way. And if you want to connect it to what's going on with Ukraine, as Gerald and Ken said, there's not really been much change that, one, they're probably watching and learning, and two, they're just letting Russia be the bad guy for, I guess, a change where a lot of this action was happening in the Indo-Pacific and all the countries are focused on China and Chinese aggression in the region. So may, people may disagree, but it works in China's benefit to kind of keep a lower profile in the ages and all that all those statements and all that focus that would have been on China is now 100% focused on Russia. And I think China understands that, that with the war going on, there's no real purpose in launching a provocative incursion because it could be misconstrued as some taking advantage of the situation in Europe or something like that. So I'm not surprised by the lack of change at the moment and also the low profile because right now it's kind of, I would call it quote unquote Europe time, whereas Indo-Pacific time was earlier in the year in terms of news and developments, whereas now, as long as the United States is focused on not China-related issues, that could be considered a win for China. Could you elaborate on what you mean by operational versus training factors? I would say the operational factors would be something like, for instance, uh, tracking U.S. submarines, like kind of conducting intelligence, uh, you know, Taiwan probing weaknesses, things along those lines. This would largely be with the uh, like KQ-200 flights, the anti-submarine uh, warfare operations. So we can see a lot of the routes that they take are very operational in nature in that they are conducting intelligence on foreign naval assets, things along those lines. So reasons for like day-to-day -day operations as opposed to training, which would be more like preparing training for certain kind of strike patterns, uh, practicing air-to-air -air refueling operations. Nothing that's not like actively being utilized in a specific operation, but it's just for force training and development. Got it. Okay. So, so the difference at least, um, is that for training, it's more on, on China's personal schedule that it's set for itself, whether it's based on its training cycle or not, an operational might be responsive to other militaries as they're, uh, as they're flowing through the Taiwan Strait or operating near the region. Yeah. Yeah, precisely. Let's now talk a little bit about um, how Taiwan has responded. So, so Gerald, um, as you've been compiling this database on PLA incursions, 
What have you seen in terms of patterns from Taiwan M&D responses? What challenges have Taiwan M&D faced as it's seeing more and more Chinese incursions, both incursions in the ADAs, but also activities um, across the center line? Yeah, no, it's a great question. And uh, the the unfortunate response is that there's there's not a lot of information on that. So initially, we know that Taiwan responded to each incursion. That no longer the case. So, uh, so as of October of 2020, Taiwan's armed forces that already spent uh, what ended up being a total of 8.7% of their total defense budget for that year on just responding to these PLA incursions. The number of incursions continued to grow from there, right? So Taiwan at that point kind of started responding in more cost-effective manners from the best we can understand uh, using, for instance, slower moving aircraft to intercept other slower moving PLA aircraft. So instead of scrambling fighters to uh, respond to for instance, an electronic intelligence aircraft or an anti-submarine warfare aircraft may be responding with similar aircraft. Uh, in March of 2021, they announced that they would not respond to each sortie. So it would still send aircraft sometimes, but it wouldn't do so with each incursion. Uh, instead, it would basically give warnings, radio, like verbal warnings, and then track incursions with surface air missiles. We don't know how much that is though that could be you know like responding to half the flights it could be responding to a smaller amount larger amount there's a lot of uh the delta there is quite large right let me now turn to the policy implications from your perspective how do you view whether pla incursions has have been successful or not have they had the desired effect that china wanted from these operations i think it's a bit of a mixed bag uh it's been successful in showing that the PLA has those resources available to conduct so many sorties. But as Ken was saying, the total number doesn't necessarily matter. It's the individual hours that each pilot is flying. As we've already said, there's a lot of press involved whenever Beijing launches one of these large-scale incursions. Like in October 2021, during Golden Week in China, there were a lot of incursions and a lot of planes over a very short period of time. And CNN and every major newspaper out there was covering it every day. The Biden administration had to release a statement to kind of tamp down the pressure. Um, so in that regard, the, the world is aware of these activities. But at the same time, it hasn't really deterred the international community from responding, uh, at least rhetorically. And in the U.S. case, it has uh, continued to launch its freedom of navigation operations and transits through the Taiwan Strait. So while Beijing has shown publicly how much power that it potentially has, it really hasn't had the desired effect of really scaring the people of Taiwan. Before COVID, every time I would go and give it to a classroom to give a talk, I would always ask my students, how afraid are you of an invasion? How afraid of you are of these air incursions? And nobody seemed to care. It just, it's become an, as Ken said, it's become routine. So the more that the PLA does this and the more routinized it gets, I think the less of a psychological effect it will actually have on the people of Taiwan because you'll stop caring, you'll stop paying attention because it's just every day. It's a part of the new status quo. And, and in terms of your discussion of how these incursions might be more routine, how would you look at the trajectory of these incursions? Do you see that this could continuously expand over time? Uh, do you see radical increase over time? 
And related to that, how do you understand what the PLA is doing in the Taiwan Strait in terms of on the air side versus what appears to be suspicion that China may be interested in using civilian aircraft to operate more in the Taiwan Strait? So tra- trajectory has definitely been increasing substantially, right? Uh, I mean, 972 flights last year is uh, quite a, a big jump from, you know, uh, <laughs> 390 before and 20 before that and zero for several years before that, right? Uh, so I, I think that in, the, in 2022 so far, it didn't seem to really uh, show any signs of slowing down, right? Uh, so I, I think we can definitely can expect to see the trajectory increase there as far as number of flights. Uh, additionally, the kind of a uh, scope of flights, the scope of flights and like kind of the uh, what they're doing has also been uh, growing more sophisticated over time. So uh, there's a variety of different, like for instance, uh, they flew an air to air refueling mission that was uh, new, uh, different patterns have emerged and more uh, types of aircraft have been becoming more evol- uh, involved in these flights. The sophistication has just generally increased over time. And I think that we're expecting to continue to see that uh, as we move forward here, it never seems to go backwards, right? Uh, regarding the uh, use of civilian aircraft, uh, you know, it, it's certainly a possibility, right? Uh, the gray zone nature of the 80s incursions is kind of one of the greatest challenges in responding to them. Uh, it's not really as clear cut as responding to PLA incursions into Taiwan's actual uh, sovereign airspace. Uh, it kind of allows the PLA to reap operational benefits and put, really put military pressure on Taiwan below the threshold of actual conflict. Uh, if they were to use civilian aircraft, like you mentioned, uh, it w- would certainly be an interesting change, and not outside of the PRC's playbook by any means. Uh, but ultimately, I think that the challenge of responding there would be somewhat similar to the complications they face in the current thing, unless you're actually flying over sovereign airspace, such as the uh, recent flight uh, that was, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's it's certainly an area I'll be watching for development, and I don't think there's really a lot of good options for Taiwan there. In some way, wouldn't civilian aircraft be less escalatory because you wouldn't have to fear if the aircraft has any munitions on it or could be used for any sorts of uh, offensive operations against Taiwan? Yeah, no, I, I would I would certainly agree with that. Uh, I think that the kind of complication is how Taiwan plays that politically and uh, just kind of, I mean, like, I wouldn't be concerned about an attack coming from that or anything like that, but uh, it's a complicated thing to respond to and kind of uh, pushing Taiwan's buttons in that regard. I think an important uh, part of the trajectory, especially since the Russian invasion of Ukraine, is how creative or how different will these incursions get post-invasion of Ukraine? How, like, well, I'm interested to see what lessons Beijing will learn after seeing Russia fail to achieve air superiority in the initial weeks of the war. So we may be seeing as the war in Ukraine goes on, Beijing and the ADIS might start getting more creative. We might see more sophistication in their incursions. We might see more two-a-days, as Ken mentioned earlier, before the PLA never really flew at night. So are we going to see more night missions? So I think Ukraine right now is an important marker for, as we continue studying this throughout 2022, and is there going to be a kind of pre-Ukraine invasion ADIS pattern and a post-Ukraine ADIS pattern? Why would the pattern change? It seems like what you're saying is one reason why this pattern would change is that China is saying that without air dominance, air superiority in Ukraine, how difficult it is to execute a ground invasion. 
So in the case of Taiwan, then China probably wants to make doubly sure that it has air superiority, which would then potentially increase the incentives to engage in more sorties. But then how does how do you align that with what Ken was saying that in which that these sorties aren't really providing that much advanced training for the PLA? Yeah, I think that the training thing is going to be a tough issue. I think at least in regards to air superiority, if we're seeing Russia struggle to achieve air superiority on a country with which it shares a land border. Now, if the same type of scenario occurs over Taiwan, these jets have to fly across the Taiwan Strait to get there before they can even start achieving air superiority over Taiwan proper, let alone the Taiwan Strait. So I think that the in a conflict over Taiwan, the air element is going to be so much more sophisticated than what we're seeing in Ukraine. And that, to me, is at least in the initial stages of what's happening in Ukraine, it just is telling me that China is has to study this. And I, I'm expecting, I'm granted, this is speculation, but there's got to be some changes to what they're doing in their own practice run, so to speak. Like, as we said earlier, there hadn't been many refueling missions going on. So maybe we'll see more of them uh, later on after we see whatever lessons learned Beijing gets from Ukraine. As Ken said, these pilots aren't getting enough training. And if one pilot gets more training, then that reduces the amount of training that someone else may have. And they're only getting uh, three hours every quarter. So they need to figure out internally, well, how are we going to get our pilots more prepared, more ready for that conflict? And I don't know what they're going to do to achieve that goal, but there really has to be some sort of reassessment on both the part of Beijing and Taipei. Taipei is getting a lesson in how to prevent a country from achieving air superiority over its own land. So Taiwan also, as Beijing is fiddling with its own policies, Taiwan we're going to probably also see, may, it may not change its responses to the sorties that in the ages, but we may see hopefully some tactical changes on Taiwan's part with what it's purchasing uh, from the U.S. and its defense concepts at large. To kind of add to Tan's point here, over the last year and a half, we've seen some of this already starting to unfold, right? One of the big changes over the last uh, probably six or seven months or so in particular has been the vast increase in fighter aircraft. Uh, previously, if you look like kind of late 2020, beginning of 2021, most of these flights that uh, like the predominant variant of aircraft was the anti-submarine warfare aircraft uh, running kind of operational missions. We'd have a variety of like, you know, intelligence platforms, things along those lines, but it moves on, then it's more and more of fighter aircraft and uh, combat-oriented aircraft, and they're flying with slowly with larger formations and just far, far, far more frequently to the point where fighter aircraft by far make up the majority of all incursions into the uh, air defense identification zone today, which was definitely not the, uh, not the norm previously. So how has the U.S. responded to the increase in PL incursions? Has the U.S. response changed between administrations? And what role do U.S. allies, partners, and other regional actors play? The U.S. has been quite vocal uh, across administrations about the incursions. In terms of the Biden administration, one of the State Department's first ever statements was about a major incursion in late January, right after the inauguration. Secretary of State Tony Blinken has also made statements on a variety of Sunday shows condemning these incursions. And I think most importantly is the Taiwan Strait security issue has appeared in a number of bilateral and multilateral joint statements where someone visits the White House, like Prime Minister Suga or President Moon, 
And in the joint statement, they mentioned how peace and security in the Taiwan Strait are important issues for both countries to keep in mind. Militarily, the Navy conducts about one transit of the Taiwan Strait per month. Uh, so it's about an average of just the one go through from either north to south or south to north on their way to the South China Sea or up to Japan. The biggest difference, I think, between the Biden and Trump administrations has been the tone and how they've reacted to things publicly. Uh, Biden, I would say they're more measured and they, with especially the readouts and in the statements that they release condemning the actions. Uh, the other biggest difference is how the issue has been internationalized since Trump left office and Biden took over. Before, it was kind of a bilateral issue where the Trump administration would make statements against China, and you didn't really see much else internationally. But now we're seeing with the G7, we're seeing with Japan, Korea, Australia, all the big countries in the region and even now in Europe are really condemning this aggression against Taiwan. And we've also seen beyond that in Japan, former Prime Minister Abe has recently, since spring, come out really in favor of enhancing Japanese relations with Taiwan and speaking out for Taiwan's security. So I think we're going to continue to see more and more countries pay attention to this issue and more and more countries are going to condemn it whenever more than one leader uh, is in a big summit somewhere. Thank you. So one final question before we wrap up this podcast. We're now over a month into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. As this has been occurring in Europe, have you seen any changes in PLA flights into Taiwan's ADIS? No, not not really. Uh, if we've seen any changes, then I would say that it's become a little more reserved, but that's also hard to correlate with that. There's nothing that we can say for sure has been correlated with it. Uh, there's definitely been a a little bit fewer flights. I think that that's probably unrelated, though. The other factor I would point out is the YAASW flights over the past month have pretty much dropped off, which is unusual. These are typically the uh, most frequent flights that we see in the uh, ADIS. However, that's probably much more related to the fact that one of these aircraft crashed at the beginning of this month. And indeed, as soon as that happened, that's right when the uh, flights dropped off uh, after the 1st of March. So nothing that seems directly related to the uh, Ukraine crisis. If you want to connect it to what's going on with Ukraine, as Gerald and Ken said, there's not really been much change. So just to make sure, you're not seeing the PLA or China take advantage of U.S. and Western attention on Ukraine to significantly increase military pressure on Taiwan. That's correct. There's been a far less uh, incursions this month so far, so nothing, uh, nothing to that effect. Well, on that somewhat positive note, I wanted to thank all three of my guests for joining us today. So thank you, Ken. Thank you, Tom. And thank you, Gerald.